You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Amanda Mata. I have a degree in art history and recently too many thoughts that need to be siphoned off of my brain somehow, so it is really lucky that I have a podcast. I do have a few housekeeping items for the top of the show today, which I will try to keep brief and essentially in bullet point form. Um, Firstly, you might have noticed that we have some new show art. I have been making this podcast for a year at this point, and I just felt like it was time to do something new, so I hope you like it. Um, Secondly, I have made the executive decision to transition to a monthly upload schedule for the foreseeable future. Um, With this being, you know, the one year mark of making this podcast, I have spent that time kind of feeling out the right pace for me. Um, And for the moment, monthly seems to be the sweet spot. Now, I'm not wed to that schedule forever, necessarily. Um, If we ever do like a super long episode that's two parts, I can see that being like two weeks in between episodes. But for the meantime, uh, in the interest of not over-promising, I think monthly is going to be the best expectation to set. Um, However, to that end, I am still, you know, seeking out ways all the time to make content creating a more sustainable path forward for me personally. Um, To my next announcement, you are now listening to an Airwave Media podcast. I have just recently signed on to join um, a podcast network called Airwave, um, joining some really great history shows that you might already be familiar with, um, which I would encourage you to go check out. Um, One of those that I've been listening to recently is the Explorers podcast, a classic if you're into history podcasting. Um, So I'm really excited to join that platform and help support some other really great shows and and see where we go from there. Hopefully this transition to the Airwave network will involve minimal hardship for you, my listeners. Um, And because ultimately it's a really positive sign that this can indeed become, you know, sustainable podcasting, making content, things like that. So I want to say thank you to everybody who has supported by listening, by subscribing to the Patreon, all of those good things. Whether you have been here for every minute of every episode or are just tuning in for the first time. Um, If you do want to continue to support, um, besides listening, which you're already doing, you might consider joining the Patreon, following the show on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok. Um, All of these are going to be linked in the show notes. All right, now on to the good stuff. If you are new to Art of History, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I will let you know what that's going to be today in just a moment. I will also be posting the artwork, as always, over on the Instagram, which is at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, if you don't already, go ahead and give the show a follow. We recently surpassed 2,000 followers on Instagram, which is great. 
Um, that will obviously only save you time for future episodes. I will guide us through a look at that piece of artwork together, and then we will explore the bigger picture behind it. Our story this week is more a straight biography than what we've done before. It centers around an American woman who I first stumbled on while clicking down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, so that's how you know this is going to be a good one. When I saw today's artwork, which is a portrait of this woman, I knew that I needed to hone in on her and find out what was going on here. Her name is Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, and I would invite you to pull up the portrait in question now by either heading over to the Instagram or Googling her name. And yes, Bonaparte as in Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> we'll get into it. If you are Googling, it should be the first result that comes up, but you could also add the artist's name, which is Gilbert Stewart. So what are we looking at? To put it simply, three views of a woman's head are seemingly floating amidst a cloud of dark brown brush strokes. If you've ever painted with oil paints, you might know this color as burnt umber. This is the color that you use to do underpainting a lot of the time. It is the rough, unfinished nature of those brush strokes in the background and foreground that makes it hard not to be hyper aware that this is an oil painting. The borders are dominated by those swirls that seem to have been hastily applied to the canvas. In the midst of these, a woman's face appears from three viewpoints. So there are basically three floating heads in the middle of this canvas. On the left is a three-quarter view, in the center a full frontal view, and on the right a profile view. We're looking at the left side of her face. In the first two renderings, the woman gazes out of the canvas with light brown eyes, in the latter, she stares straight out of the left-hand side of the painting. She has pale ivory skin with very rosy cheeks. The tip of her nose is also tinged with the slightest pink. She has dark brown hair, which is swept up into a bun at the back of her head. It curls over her forehead in loose, romantic ringlets. It is that quintessentially Regency up to that we've been seeing in period dramas for the past 25 years at this point. Behind her head, or heads, is the faintest hint of a light blue background, our only suggestion that this painting may have been intended to be further completed than it was. But beyond that, there's not much else to remark upon. The woman's features are the only point of interest, although they are reproduced three times for us. Her expression is sort of blithely placid in each of the renditions. She's not showing any different sorts of emotion in the three different renderings. For myself, what made this painting so remarkable the first time I saw it was the fact that the only comparable paintings I've seen with the whole, you know, three head thing are a triple view self-portrait by Norman Rockwell, which is very cute, but there's definitely more of a story going on there. But there's also a painting of Charles I of England in a very similar layout, three positions of his head. That was painted by Van Dyck. That painting was used as a reference for a bust, a sculpture of King Charles I. So it does make sense that the painter in that case would want to depict his face from different angles. As far as I know, though, there was no bust produced of this woman, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, telling us that she was either very important or considered very visually iconic by her peers. Or perhaps both? But there is much more to her than meets the eye, as we will soon see. 
There was an effort made to record the details of Elizabeth's life, even while it was still going on. She lived this very long life. She was born in 1785 and died in 1879. But up until very recently, I'm talking like 2006, most attempts to approach Elizabeth's story focused solely on her marriage, which, as we will learn, was very short and lasted for only about 3% of her cumulative life. Elizabeth's biography, therefore, has been really muddled over history, and in many instances, facts were straight up erased in an effort to lend a romantic narrative to her life story. This narrative also made its way onto the stage and the screen, giving many people a, quote, fanciful and inaccurate picture of this woman's life. I have tried really hard here to give a well-rounded narrative of her life, but it was just so long. She lived to be 94 years old, so I know, I know we won't cover everything. I will have sources listed for you at the end of the episode for your perusal if you would like a more detailed look at her than what I will be able to provide. Elizabeth was born in 1785 two years after the United States became a sovereign nation in the eyes of the world when they were recognized as such by Great Britain. She was born in Baltimore, Maryland, to her parents Dorcas and William Patterson. Petition to maybe bring back the name Dorcas? I don't know. These were members of one of the wealthiest families in Maryland. William Patterson was an Irish immigrant who made his fortune in Baltimore as a merchant, a property owner, and an all-around businessman. During the early years of the Revolution, he was in the West Indies, quote, engaged in the opportunity of collecting and shipping arms and ammunition and almost everything necessary for carrying on the war. William Patterson was a slave owner and a founder of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. He was a quote-unquote self-made millionaire who was said to be the second wealthiest man in Maryland. His wife Dorcas was the daughter of a wealthy Baltimore flour merchant who, along with the family slaves, likely educated Elizabeth on the finer points of becoming a wife and a mother in the budding republic. She was one of Dorcas and William's 13 children, and I believe their eldest daughter. I will post a picture on the Instagram of Dorcas and Elizabeth that was painted uh, when she seems to have been about two years old. She had several older brothers, all of whom received education at the hands of their father and then went on to be formally trained in business and things like that. Elizabeth may have also received a formal education at a private academy in Baltimore, although we don't know this for sure. William was said to keep a tight rein on his family and his household, quote, making sure everyone was in by dark and locking the doors and windows himself. He seems to have been quite an overbearing father and household manager. Although writers and journalists refer to Elizabeth as Betsy, she never used that name herself. It was her father with whom we will see she had a contentious relationship who did call her Betsy, as did the rest of her family when she was a young girl. She always signed her own name as Elizabeth, E, or Eliza, and her future husband would refer to her in all his letters with the French Elisabeth or Elisa or even Elsa. Over in France, in 1799, Napoleon was busy declaring himself the first consul of France. Yes, this is relevant. This was the result of Napoleon and a few other military men leading a coup that most agree marked the official end of the French Revolution. So that's kind of where we are in history. 
Napoleon had become the de facto head of the French state as the leader of the consulate, an authoritarian and centralized republican government in France that would last until 1804. Under this system, there was a French constitution which preserved the appearance of a republic, but in reality, this was a dictatorship. There were supposed to be three consuls within the executive branch, but it was the first consul, Napoleon Bonaparte, who wielded all the real power. The executive branch was given the power to draft new laws, and the legislator became little more than a rubber stamp. So while Napoleon was not declaring himself the sole ruler in France at this point, he was teeing this up. His next task would be to declare himself sole ruler in name as well as in fact. French elections were becoming an elaborate charade with voters stripped of any real power. Napoleon abolished the consulate when he declared himself emperor in 1804. Now, why is this relevant to Elizabeth's story? Well, we are about to introduce another side character here, Jerome Bonaparte, who was Napoleon's younger brother. He was visiting the United States in 1803, where the real action of Elizabeth's life kind of kicks off. Jerome had been born in 1784 in Corsica. Napoleon was 15 years his senior, having been born in 1769. Jerome, therefore, had a much different upbringing and outlook than his older brother, who would have been achieving military successes as the member of a poor and some would say upstart family during the revolution while Jerome was a young adult. Jerome, therefore, kind of rested on the laurels of his brother's achievements and the riches that he had begun to accumulate for his family as he was coming of age. He seemed destined, perhaps understandably, to always be compared to his older brother, Napoleon. Described by Augustus John Foster, the secretary to the British ambassador to the U.S., he was, quote, in size smaller than Napoleon, only like Bonaparte in the lip. I will, of course, post a portrait of Jerome on the Instagram as well, um, and there are photos of him as he was an older man later in life. Jerome joined the French Navy in 1800, probably at Napoleon's behest, who was the first consul at that point. Napoleon was, quote, determined to turn Jerome into a serious and respected naval officer, lecturing him on the importance of achieving glory and leaving one's mark on life. In 1801, Napoleon sent Jerome to put down a slave rebellion in Saint-Domingue, which is the precursor to Haiti prior to that island gaining independence. Then in 1802, Jerome went to Martinique aboard a patrolling brig. He was still kind of coming up in his naval career at this point. But now a lieutenant in the French Navy, Jerome spent the summer of 1803 traveling up and down the east coast of the United States, stopping at various ports of call to socialize. He had been ordered to return to France, but he was delaying in an effort to avoid, apparently, the wrath of Napoleon for a military incident in the Caribbean between his ship and a British vessel. Jerome was also worried about being captured by the British if he sailed directly for France aboard a French ship. This is the run-up to, obviously, Napoleon's imperial wars across the continent and the War of 1812, which involved a lot of transatlantic conflict. Ultimately, Jerome would stay in the United States for another two years. I think he definitely intended to live a life of comfort during this time, but I don't know if he intended it to go on for as long as it did. 
he stopped in the relatively new U.S. capital, Washington, D.C., to ask for some money from the French Chargé d'Affaires. This was the lowest rank of a diplomatic representative, who was usually placed in a minor country. <laughs> this man was named Louis Pichon. He will come up a couple times. Pichon gave Jerome enough cash to cover his expenses for a few weeks and asked, uh, some sources say begged Jerome to keep a low profile. He wanted him to travel incognito. No need to draw too much attention to the fact that Napoleon's brother was gallivanting around the United States. Soon, Jerome was doing exactly not that, <laughs> dining with President Thomas Jefferson in DC and Vice President Aaron Burr in New York City. He also attended, quote, as many soirees and balls as possible before heading into Baltimore, ostensibly to wait for a French ship to carry him and his friends who were traveling with him home to France. It is at this point that Elizabeth and Jerome would cross paths. They were both sort of up-and-coming society uh, figures at this point. Elizabeth herself said that they met over dinner at the home of some friends from Saint-Domingue, but other versions of the story circulated, which this would become a theme later in her life. Legend tells us that Elizabeth and Jerome, who were by all accounts two very hot young people, first clapped eyes on each other at a horse race in September 1803, but they did not speak apparently until a few days later at a ball. This could have also been the dinner that Elizabeth was referring to. At this point, some meet-cute involving his watch chain getting tangled in her hair or her necklace getting caught on one of his buttons happened. Whatever actually transpired, it was evidently un coup de food or love at first sight. Jerome came to call on Elizabeth soon after, and by October 29th, they had obtained a marriage license. The wedding was set for November 7th, but obstacles started to pop up almost immediately. First, the 19-year-old Jerome lied about his age. In the U.S. at this time, the legal age of marriage for a man was 21, which he reported to Elizabeth's family that he was. But what was more, according to the newly enacted French Civil Code, a man under 25 needed his parents' consent to marry. In this case, I think Jerome would have needed his older brother's consent. Elizabeth's father also received an anonymous letter which accused Jerome of being a profligate and claimed that he only planned to marry Elizabeth in order to kill time and secure himself a place to live until he returned to France. William Patterson called the wedding off and sent Elizabeth to stay with family in Virginia. Elizabeth, with a flair for the dramatic, insisted that the marriage go ahead, going so far as to threaten to elope if she did not have her father's blessing. She declared that she would, quote, rather be the wife of Jerome Bonaparte for an hour than the wife of any other man for life. At this point in her life, Elizabeth had enjoyed a small degree of celebrity. She was one of a small circle of Baltimore Bells who were kind of on the marriage market. You can kind of imagine the degree of fame that this would be, right? So people would be discussing these women as they circulated society, went to balls, and tried to find themselves suitors. But that type of fame only afforded any woman a fleeting moment, a flash in the pan, if you will. The moment that an American woman found herself a husband, for the most part, that was to be the end of her time being celebrated in society. Elizabeth probably saw Jerome as a, quote, sure path to acclaim and renown, both in her own country and abroad. 
and as an avenue to a public and cosmopolitan life that had always been out of her grasp in the United States. William Patterson was something of a homebody, so Elizabeth had rarely even left Baltimore prior to her marriage, which did take place on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1803. Elizabeth had gotten some of her mother's side of the family to advocate for her, and Jerome himself had paid quite a few visits to William Patterson. William also insisted that a prenuptial agreement was drawn up prior to the wedding going ahead. This involved a clause that said that Elizabeth would receive the same amount of shares in William Patterson's estate on his death. I thought that was an interesting note to add in, and sadly it will become relevant again later. William also insisted that the marriage was presided over by John Carroll, the first Roman Catholic Bishop of Baltimore. This was described as an effort on his part to make the marriage, quote, as legitimate as possible. He still clearly believed that Jerome was a ne'er-do-well and a womanizer. The marriage certificate was also signed by the mayor of Baltimore, the French consul, and Jerome's private secretary. However, the entire diplomatic corps in Washington, D.C. knew full well that this, quote, romantic attachment between Jerome and Elizabeth would not succeed against the dynastic ambitions of his elder brother, Napoleon. There were rumblings that Napoleon himself had tried to intervene to get this marriage to not go ahead. Remember, he had ambitious futures in mind for all of his siblings, Jerome included, which did not involve marrying an American nobody from nowhere. Elizabeth and Jerome were kind of blissfully unaware of any impending challenges to their union at this point. They honeymooned with the help of some more money from the French diplomat Louis Pichon, and they toured around American society. Even as they did so, one British diplomat wrote, the French minister and his entourage affect to call the wife Miss Patterson in speaking to others of her. They are both, I think, very much to be pitied. Elizabeth's father appealed to President Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State James Madison, and the Minister to France, Robert Livingston, asking them to help persuade Napoleon to accept the marriage. Each of these men refused to do so, predicting that Napoleon would not be inclined to accept the young couple, and recognizing that there were more important diplomatic measures to be considered. One of these was the Louisiana Purchase, which they kind of understandably did not want to put in jeopardy over a marriage between two silly hot young people. And indeed, when Napoleon heard that the marriage had gone ahead, he apparently exploded in anger. He had already begun marrying off their other siblings to European royals, and now his younger brother had violated French law by making an imprudent marriage for himself. Napoleon ordered Jerome back to France and demanded that his marriage to Elizabeth be annulled. Jerome, for his part, ignored Napoleon's initial demand that he return to France without his wife, and he and Elizabeth believed, I think earnestly, that his anger would evaporate as soon as he met Elizabeth and discovered how happy the couple were together. When Napoleon cut Jerome off financially, um, Jerome <laughs> maybe got the message and apparently considered becoming an American citizen, at least until Napoleon came around. Elizabeth was horrified at that prospect. Remaining in Baltimore and being married to an American had never been her plan. 
In May 1804, Napoleon declared himself emperor, and at this point, I think Jerome and Elizabeth's motivations shifted slightly. Jerome resigned himself to remaining a French citizen. This meant that he would be, for now, the French half of the United States' new hot power couple. The thought, though, was that he and Elizabeth could return to Europe together, even though Jerome had been intentionally and mortifyingly left out of Napoleon's new line of succession. But Napoleon had always come around and forgiven his rebellious little brother Jerome before. Surely he would find it in his heart to do so again, right? Jerome also envisioned titles for Elizabeth and a financial settlement on which they could both live on the continent. Despite the uncertainty that lay ahead of the couple, they continued kind of courting the favor of American society for the time being. The newlywed Elizabeth quickly became considered one of the most beautiful women in Baltimore, and became known for her risque and decidedly French taste in fashion. Her clothing, which I will post examples of on the Instagram, not only proclaimed her taste for decidedly European modes, but also scandalized polite American society. Foster, the uh, secretary to the British ambassador, described Elizabeth as having, quote, not a good figure, but very delicate skin and I think very pretty little features. Her wedding dress in the French style, though tasteful enough, had been described as being so thin and delicate that it might be put in a man's pocket. Jerome, for his part, had dressed ostentatiously for the wedding, not trying to blend in with his wife's countrymen, but rather wearing the rich purple satin and diamond buckles of a prince. Now 19 years old, rich and smart, and ready to turn heads wherever she went, Elizabeth was out to leave her mark on society. Her appearances at Washington, D.C. gatherings sporting these revealing new French fashions set tongues wagging and garnered everyone's attention. From an article called Remembering the Ladies, Women, Etiquette, and Diversions in Washington City, 1800-1804, we have some really great quotes of how she did make a splash and made her way into all of these contemporary accounts of the DC scene at this time. The author of that article, Cynthia D. Earman, describes the scene thusly. During the federal seat's first decades, its residents followed social customs based on those of New York, Boston, and Philadelphia, with a European flourish. Social calls consumed hours every day, and a hierarchy was established. This went from the general public up to the wives of congressmen, cabinet members, diplomats, and finally the president's family right at the top. But finding designers to properly outfit the front women of this new society proved difficult at first. Many DC women depended on friends and family to send them articles of clothing from abroad in order to appear fully a la mode. Stylish garments in Washington were considered plain and neat, nothing too flashy, but these still needed to be suitably becoming to the lady. However, over in Europe, <laughs> indecency was becoming more in. A writer in a Georgetown newspaper in 1803 decried the, quote, destructive tendencies of the fair sex in the higher circles of fashion to sacrifice decency at the throne of fashion. Elizabeth was a notorious perpetrator of this crime, and society ladies were known to, quote, make a point of leaving the room or reprimanding her when she dressed in a manner they deemed too risque. In 1804, Rosalie Calvert, a Belgian émigrée who had moved to her husband's estate six miles from Washington, 
wrote of the fashions of Elizabeth, some of the gowns, quote, display a little too much. Among others, Madame Bonaparte, who wears dresses so transparent and tight that you can see her skin through them. No chemise at all. Also in 1804, a guest wrote of Elizabeth at a party given by her aunt, Margaret Smith Smith. Uh, she was the wife of the Secretary of the Navy. Quote, mobs of boys have crowded round her splendid equipage to see what I hope will not be often seen in this country, an almost naked woman. Apparently, quote, a crowd assembled round the windows to get a look at this beautiful little creature who wore the thinnest sarcant, sarcant, I don't know, and white crepe with the least stiffening to it. There was scarcely any waist to it and no sleeves. Her back, her bosom, part of her waist, and her arms were uncovered, and the rest of her form visible. Rosalie Calvert wrote on this specific occasion that the, quote, offending dress was so transparent that you could see the color and shape of her thighs, and even more. For the record, Rosalie sounds like a real spitfire, at least on paper, because she also wrote of another guest at this event named Elizabeth Mary, that she covered only with fine lace two objects which could fill a fourth of a bushel. I will leave that to your imagination. Thomas Law, who was an English real estate investor and developer, wrote a poem to mark this 1804 appearance by Elizabeth. Warning, it is suitably gross and somewhat lacking in the nuanced metaphor you might expect when I say the word poetry. But here we go. I was at Mrs. Smith's last night and highly gratified myself. Well, what of Madame Bonaparte? Why, she's a little whore at heart. Her lustful looks, her wanton air, her limbs revealed her bosom bare. Show her ill-suited for the life of a Columbian's modest wife. Wisely she's chosen her proper line. She's formed for Jerome's concubine. It was actually Vice President Aaron Burr who, quote, wickedly brought those words to Elizabeth's attention at a party. This prompted Law to hastily scribble a more becoming second verse before handing it over to Elizabeth to read. This poem was one of the first contributors to Elizabeth's fame in Europe. She was starting to get noticed in the papers over there, as Rosalie Calvert sent this poem to her family in Belgium and they read it to their society friends. On another occasion in Washington, when Elizabeth was supposed to attend an event at the residence of Louis Pichon, some D.C. ladies took it upon themselves to inform her that, quote, if she wished to meet them there, she must promise to have more clothing on. Evidently, Elizabeth acquiesced because her social calendar never took a hit. It seems she knew where to toe the line. In 1806, a woman named Catherine Mitchell described, quote, the pretty little Duchess of Baltimore, saying that she, quote, outshines all the ladies here for the splendor and elegance of her dress. Even Mrs. Madison cannot sport diamonds and pearls in such profusion. The evening I saw her, she was dressed very plain, at least that part of her body that was covered at all. She exposes so much of her bosom as modesty would permit, and I think rather more. Her back was laid bare, nearly halfway down to the bottom of her waist, and she displayed a very white, smooth neck. She might have used artificial means to make it so. The state of nudity in which she appeared attracted the attention of the gentlemen, for I saw several of them take a look at her bubbies while they were conversing with her. 
It was in 1803 that the newlywed Jerome and Elizabeth arranged for her portrait to be painted by Gilbert Stuart, quote, probably in the hopes that Napoleon would accept her after seeing her beauty. I am going to take a little break, and when I come back, we will talk about that portrait and what it represented for Elizabeth's image. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we are back. So we are picking up with Jerome and Elizabeth going straight to the top of the American portrait painting game to get Gilbert Stuart to paint a portrait of Elizabeth. Gilbert Stuart was known as one of the foremost American portraitists at this time. His most famous portrait is an unfinished picture of George Washington. Um, You've probably seen it before because it was reproduced hundreds of times. Um, It's called the Athenaeum Portrait. He also painted the other first five presidents of the United States, as well as, I think, upwards of a thousand of early American society's most notable people. So it kind of made sense that Jerome and Elizabeth would go to him if they were looking to get a portrait of her that could bring Napoleon around to being on their side. 
The painting shows Elizabeth Patterson as a newlywed, her face, as we've discussed, depicted in three different angles, described as a full face, two-thirds face, and a profile. We can read that blush in her face as the bloom of a newlywed woman. Stuart was apparently so captivated by Elizabeth's beauty that he just had to paint her in this unique style. This was, as far as I know, the only one of these portraits ever done by an American artist like this. Many people made a special trip to Stewart's studio to see the painting, but viewers were apparently disappointed that the painting denied them the opportunity to see Elizabeth's full figure. They had no doubt heard plenty about it at this point, with those accounts of Elizabeth's beauty not only making it into letters from Washington society, but also in the papers. Thomas Law wrote a new poem, this one much more kind, upon seeing the portrait, writing in part, The picture with three heads in one, with so much fervor idolized will be. I tremble lest our faith should be undone by this new captivating trinity. If his changed opinion about Elizabeth, at least on paper, is any indication, people were beginning to take Jerome and Elizabeth's side in the Napoleon versus the Newlyweds drama. This, remember, was getting into the papers, people were following this narrative, so it kind of made sense that on the American side they would um, take up the cause of what they saw as true love over the aristocratic ideals of Napoleon. Copies of the painting were made in miniature and sent abroad, which probably contributed to Elizabeth's personal rising star as a transatlantic celebrity, one of the first in history. However, Jerome apparently was critical of the work. I could not exactly find why. Perhaps he didn't like seeing his wife, I don't know, objectified in this way. Um, so annoyed by that criticism from Jerome, Stuart apparently refused to complete the painting, leaving it as this rough oil sketch. In 1807, Stuart took the painting to his own studio in Boston and placed it there with other quote-unquote discarded canvases. His daughter Jane remembered seeing, quote, this beautiful sketch of Madame Bonaparte, which was the idol that she worshipped. One of Elizabeth's friends would later go to Stuart's um, studio to retrieve a portrait of Jerome that he had painted, but he would not part with the triple portrait of Elizabeth. So there it stayed until 1820, when uh, her father, William Patterson, would succeed in obtaining the portrait. Elizabeth regarded the portrait as, quote, the only true likeness that has ever been made of me. My other pictures are quite like anyone else as me. By the fall of 1804, Jerome and a now-pregnant Elizabeth were starting to think seriously about traveling to France to seek the approval of Emperor Napoleon. I'm sure they thought, as many young couples do, that there's nothing quite like a new baby to heal any family rifts that might be going on. They also intended to be in France in time for Napoleon's uh, self-coronation, as it would turn out, as emperor but a number of false starts delayed them. When they finally did set sail in March 1805, Napoleon had not warmed to the idea of the marriage. He forbade anyone who received the couple from treating Elizabeth as Jerome's legitimate wife, and he had already applied to the Pope for a formal annulment, falsely claiming that the marriage had been officiated by a Spanish priest, Kel Horror. 
Aside from lying to the Pope, which, okay, kind of iconic, Napoleon apparently also attempted to bribe him with a crown of jewels. The Pope, who had been able to learn quite easily, I would imagine, that the highest-ranking Catholic clergyman in the U.S. had, in fact, performed the marriage, not only declined to annul it, but also declared it definitively valid in the eyes of the Church. Kind of backfired, Napoleon's plan did there. Napoleon next turned to an office that he could control, the French Council of State, and had them declare the marriage invalid under French law. Still, Elizabeth's approach to ultimately winning over her brother-in-law, the emperor, was very much, just, just get me in the room with him. She clearly thought that her charisma and charm could win over any of his imperial ambitions. Elizabeth was denied permission to accompany Jerome to the continent and was even threatened with arrest if she landed in any area that Napoleon controlled. He literally issued decrees to this effect, one of which prohibited, quote, all captains of French vessels from receiving on board the young person to whom Citizen Jerome has connected himself. Remember, he's not a prince, he is Citizen Jerome. Undeterred by all of this, which was in part being reported in the press, Elizabeth and Jerome set sail. They had a relatively quick crossing and landed in Lisbon, Portugal in April 1805, where Jerome was intercepted by an imperial escort sent by his brother. He assured Elizabeth that he would reason with Napoleon and suggested that she travel in the meantime to Amsterdam to wait for him and, if need be, give birth. En route to see Napoleon, Jerome wrote to his wife, My dearest Elsa, I will do everything that must be done. However, she would never see him again. All the while, newspapers in America followed every step that this couple took on the European continent. They reported their every move. Their seriously stressful situation at this point was treated like a romantic novel for American readers to consume. At this point, Elizabeth was six or seven months pregnant, and she now had two primary motivations. One was still to get herself in front of Napoleon, although the likelihood of that, she even had to admit, was slipping out of her fingers day by day. But now she also wanted to enter her France so that her baby would be born on French soil, making him a French citizen and giving her and Jerome the most leverage. She took her husband's advice and sailed for the Netherlands, hoping to enter France that way. The portmaster in Amsterdam, however, was very afraid of incurring Napoleon's wrath and would not let her disembark her ship. He would also not let her ship leave. Now, she was not the only person on this ship. She was accompanied by some of Jerome's friends and some staff members, and I think two of her brothers were with her as well. But after about a week just anchored at port hanging out, their food began to run out. This is a pregnant woman kind of stuck in limbo because this portmaster doesn't know what will make Napoleon the most angry. They were finally allowed to depart. They headed for England, one of the few quote-unquote civilized places where Napoleon had no influence in Europe. As Elizabeth arrived in Dover, crowds gathered to catch a glimpse of her, the ship captain wrote, quote, The concourse of persons gathered to see Madame B. land was immense, and it was with great difficulty that she could get as far as the carriage. When she arrived at her lodgings, quote, A great crowd was collected likewise at the inn door, and even on the stairs, an entry to get a sight of her. 
The ship captain also wrote that Elizabeth, despite all that she had been through up to this point, was far from shrinking at such a crowd. This, to me, is not necessarily surprising. This was likely the moment that Elizabeth knew she had achieved true international celebrity. The news coverage of her and her husband continued, and Elizabeth would have been informed on Jerome's movement, not just through letters from him, which did continue, but mostly by speculative articles on his movements within France. Elizabeth gave birth to a son, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, on July 5th, 1805, at 95 Camberwell Grove in Camberwell, London. The name was probably intended as an olive branch to the emperor, but Elizabeth called her son Beau. Despite receiving letters from Jerome saying that he would remain steadfast and not abandon her, Elizabeth concluded that the best move for her and her son at this point would be to return to America, to her father's house in Baltimore. The British press was doing what they still do best today, turning her fame against her. They would sometimes report that Elizabeth was out on the town while she was actually doing nothing more than sitting at home. She feared that the overwhelming attention she received in London would do more harm to Napoleon's ideas of her. Now, over in France, let's check up on what Jerome was up to during this time. Napoleon, it turns out, had refused to even see Jerome until he wrote a letter of apology for his quote-unquote defiance. He had written romantic letters to Elizabeth throughout her pregnancy, even as he had formally renounced his marriage to her in France and returned to his naval career. By October 1805, when Beau would have been three months old, Napoleon had made Jerome an imperial prince and had started looking for his royal bride. Jerome was also made an admiral in the French Navy, restarting a trajectory that would later see him become a general in the French army. Even though by now we can probably agree that Jerome was fully for the streets, he clearly knew that what he was doing was messed up. Later in life, while writing his memoirs, he wrote that his love for Elizabeth was sincere, while also reflecting on the, quote, shame of inaction when it came to his career, and the, quote, anger that he had dared to brave that made kings tremble in their throne, i.e. his brother Napoleon's anger. Clearly, the latter two sentiments outweighed his love for his wife and child. Jerome's marriage to Elizabeth was annulled in France by machinations carried out by Napoleon in October 1806, despite, above all, the Pope's unwillingness to annul the marriage himself. Ten months after Napoleon dissolved Jerome and Elizabeth's marriage, Jerome was married to the German princess Katerina of Württemberg on August 22, 1807, in the royal palace at Fontainebleau, France. Katerina was a Protestant, and Napoleon gave the new couple the Kingdom of Westphalia in Germany to rule. As his final reward for obedience, Jerome was now a king. Though Elizabeth became very aware through the coverage of this saga that she had lost the gamble she had made on Jerome, she still retained his name, insisting that she was a Bonaparte for the rest of her life. And by the laws of her own country, she was still married to Jerome. Her marriage had not been annulled in the church or under American law. So there's also that. An interesting aside here, Little Beau's birth and the possibility that he might one day be granted a title by his Bonaparte family also sparked a constitutional amendment in the U.S. that could have had long-reaching consequences. 
1810, Congress proposed the Titles of Nobility Amendment, which would strip an American of their citizenship if he or she accepted any title of nobility from a foreign nation. It would also make them, quote, incapable of holding any office of trust or profit. The amendment was approved by 11 states at the time, but was rejected by Virginia and New York. It would have needed ratification in 13 uh, states to pass when it was introduced, and as more states got added to the Union, this number just kept going up and up, and it never quite passed the threshold. Very interesting to think about the implications that that would have had on, I mean, women we know of from the 20th and 21st century, Wallace Simpson, Meghan Markle, things like that. However, with the failure of that amendment to actually pass, um, Elizabeth never fully ruled out the possibility of getting a title for her son or even herself. We will see that pop up a few times in her future. Let's not think of her Napoleon name and her possible title as her consolation, though. One of the authors I read wrote that while in Europe, she formed close friendships with numerous female intellectuals, writers, and saloniers. These women, known as femmes de spirit, <laughs> My French is so rusty. Um, these women regularly declared their political and social opinions and knew that they possessed influence. So this was the scene that Elizabeth was seeing herself come up in. Elizabeth did return to Baltimore with Beau, and she lived there with her father. Although her celebrity followed Elizabeth everywhere, her countrymen also took every opportunity at this point to, quote, gloat over her ruined hopes. Does this have any echoes, again, of the fate of a certain 2020s American royal for anyone else? Americans of Elizabeth's day, much like now, had a great disdain for monarchy. This made the fact that Elizabeth immediately began to openly promote her royal connections all the more remarkable. She had had to return to the country that she had called simple and boring, but she was set on making the best of her situation. After recovering from her pregnancy and letting the gossip about her die down a bit, she re-emerged into Baltimore society, quote, ready to restore her celebrity. Apparently, she was supported by her friends in this, love that. One of them wrote to her that, quote, nature never put so much beauty and wit together to languish away in obscurity. Basically, think of Christina telling Meredith in Grey's Anatomy, he's not the son, you are. Elizabeth now openly shared her taste for revealing fashions with society, unabashedly admired the aristocracy, and let her unwillingness to, quote, conform to the role of wife and mother be known. Of course, this open defiance of American culture and social norms brought Elizabeth her fair share of criticism and disapproval from her American peers, but European aristocrats and intellectuals admired her mind and her strong will. As a monarchist to her dying day, Elizabeth was both modern and archaic in her views of society and culture, according to the Maryland Historical Society. She, quote, believed women should control their own destinies, from the choice of a husband and the decision to have children to the ability to manage and make money. Yet, despite these thoroughly modern ideas, Elizabeth held on to the belief that society needed order and that democracy left individuals without defined roles in society. The great irony is that America and the freedom it offered her made her rich. 
She found that in Europe, it was more acceptable for women to pursue their ambitions openly, however. Their culture was more used to women participating in public in a variety of ways. Money or power, it now seemed that she could have one, but not both, on whichever side of the Atlantic she chose. At the same time, this was part of the novelty that followed Elizabeth as she circulated American society. She was a rare example of a transatlantic celebrity in the early Republic, and while she had achieved that fame as other notable women of the time did through her marriage, she held on to that fame through her own efforts. One of her biographers, Charlene Lewis, who I will be quoting heavily for the rest of the episode, writes that, quote, given the long-standing association of women with luxury and corruption, Elizabeth easily served as a lightning rod for those who feared for the success of the shaky republic. She not only contributed to the debates over the correct forms for American society and culture, but also was, for a time, a focal point of that debate. This was partly due to a shortage of respectable, quote, public women in America at this time. To be a woman attracting attention in public usually meant to these early Americans that you were a prostitute. Elizabeth was part of a small group of trailblazing women who redefined what it meant to be the object of public discussion in the United States. These women learned to, quote, walk social lines, indulging in excessive behavior without tarnishing their public images. The paradoxical view of Elizabeth as both an object of admiration and an object of scorn illustrates the contradictions in American society over the correct character for the new nation. For her own part, Elizabeth cared little whether her compatriots considered her poorly suited for the new republic. She was convinced that she belonged in the courts of Europe instead of the parlors of Baltimore. This was not out of mere vanity. She thought deeply about these issues and selected the modes that, quote, best suited her beliefs and her self-perception. She found her homeland not only to be provincial and boring, she also disliked, truly, its political structures and, more importantly, the social limits that it placed on women. And, of course, she wasn't the only one. Other women aplenty found, quote, dissatisfaction with the role of Republican wife and mother, which said that women could best serve the new nation in private ways by marrying virtuous men and raising sons to become good Republican citizens. And women, particularly the white elite women, were always at the center of debates on, quote, the meanings of republicanism, national identity, and citizenship in the drawing rooms and ballrooms of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington. It hasn't been until very recently that historiography, the study of historical sources, has caught up to these women's existence. Status and wealth definitely helped, as women like Elizabeth were enabled to pursue options that were unavailable to their lower-class counterparts or women of color. Now, I do think that Elizabeth had a flair for the dramatic and a touch of pettiness in her, which, you know, I can relate to. I am a hopefully recovering petty bitch. Um, but I found a lot of joy in the fact that Americans at this point did start to take Elizabeth's side in the matter of... America versus France, and the matter of Elizabeth versus Jerome, beginning with the press coverage of his second marriage. Jerome was largely painted as a bigamist, even as the papers reported every tiny detail of his royal wedding. 
at this point, as I'm saying Jerome so, so much, I really want to go listen to the Lizzo song, Jerome. I think that would be like the perfect like background noise for this episode. The sense here was very much, how dare this upstart Bonaparte boy, who was part of a low-born family from nowhere, how dare he treat one of our bright young American women from an excellent family this way? Elizabeth began to see and be seen. She would circulate more intellectual circles in Washington, attending congressional debates and important parties with notable American citizens. Debates were fashionable places for society women to gather, with a decidedly Republican twist. This was one of the places where women could talk politics, both with other ladies and with the men in government. Elizabeth seems to have been more interested in politics as a social tool than for their own merits. Her letters are certainly up to date with the current events in government, but she wasn't debating with her close family, friends, and associates. She also seemed to be more interested in, quote, the wars and politics of Europe, events that could have a direct impact on her and her son's future, than on elections and political parties in America. I get the sense that she saw herself as above those petty squabbles. Elizabeth became close friends, however, with numerous Washington society women, including First Lady Dolly Madison, even staying with the First Family when she visited the Capitol. Elizabeth's wardrobe continued to be an important tool in her arsenal as she committed herself to her image as a cosmopolitan American woman. Charlene Lewis writes, Her French clothes empowered her, and she wore them with pride, confident that she represented the height of European style and culture. As the War of 1812 approached and British ships lurked outside of Washington, Elizabeth made a special trip from Baltimore to secure her wardrobe that was stored there. This was her most important asset, both financially and in terms of her image. Even as she was making herself out to be a self-made woman, Elizabeth continued to use her royal connection to support herself and her son. This enormous wardrobe of her and her collection of jewels was built upon the gifts that Jerome had lavished upon her during their marriage, and even after they had separated. She kept all of these, even as she also secured an allowance from Napoleon, who was apparently afraid that the British would seize Elizabeth and her son Beau, install her in London as sort of a slap in the face to him, and then use her for God only knows what nefarious means. Elizabeth used this allowance from Napoleon to support herself and Beau after her father, William Patterson, claimed the money and goods that Jerome had sent her, um, I, I assume as repayment for supporting her after she gave birth. I, I don't know. Elizabeth also asked Napoleon at this time to grant her a title, and there was much speculation that he would indeed make her a duchess and install her in Europe. I don't quite understand the reasoning behind that, you know, option. Perhaps this would have been in recognition that Beau was in fact a Bonaparte and could be useful to Napoleon's empire in the future. Even though, spoiler alert, she never did receive an imperial title, Elizabeth's contemporaries began to call her the Duchess of Baltimore more and more in the press coverage of her. The prospect of a title for her son was not ruled out at this point, however, so that would always be something that she set her sights on. In 1813, by an act of the legislature of Maryland, Elizabeth officially secured a divorce. 
She would still be referred to in both America and Europe as Madame Bonaparte by most of society, even as bets were made as to whether and when and to whom she would now marry. After Napoleon's final defeat at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, Elizabeth made a grand return to Europe, something I think was always part of her grand plan to ensure that her fame would remain international. Elizabeth received letters of introduction to important European families with American relatives, and was reportedly well-received in the most exclusive circles, and she was also, of course, much admired for her beauty and her wit. She even received introductions to the Marquis de Lafayette, boldly ensuring herself access to the best that French society could now offer. She returned to Europe again in 1819 with her son, whom she enrolled in school in Geneva. She traveled to Rome during the winter of 1821 to 22 at the behest of Pauline Bonaparte, one of Napoleon's youngest sisters. She had hinted at making a financial settlement upon Beau. Elizabeth had heard through the grapevine that Pauline, quote, wished to do everything in her power for repairing the wrongs done by her family to a lady who had been sacrificed by political errors, which reasons of state could not justify. At this point, Beau had never met his father or his Bonaparte relatives, but Pauline proved generous to Elizabeth, welcoming both her and Beau to Rome, where they rubbed shoulders with many of the Bonaparte relatives, but not Jerome. While she was there, Elizabeth learned why Jerome had never sent her and Beau any financial support, why it had come from his brother, the emperor. He was broke. She wrote to her father, Jerome is entirely ruined, his fortune, capital, income, everything spent, and his debts so large that his family can do nothing for him if they are inclined, which they are not. It became clear that Pauline was equally in no position to settle a fortune upon Beau, although she would leave him a good chunk of change upon her death. Elizabeth saw another advantage to her connection with Pauline, though. She had turned her attention to securing a good marriage, which in this case meant to a titled heiress, for her son. Pauline and Elizabeth conspired to make a match between Beau, who was now 16, and the daughter of Joseph Bonaparte, Charlotte, who was 18. Joseph was Pauline and Napoleon's older brother, who had been made King of Naples and then King of Spain during the height of the French Empire. After its fall, Joseph styled himself Le Comte de Surveillet, I don't know, and emigrated to the U.S. with his daughter, where he made a living by apparently selling off some of the Spanish crown jewels. Charlotte's proximity to Beau, she lived in New Jersey, he lived in Baltimore, and her bloodline made her the perfect candidate for Beau in the eyes of both families. And for Elizabeth, her large inheritance would certainly help matters. She told her father, William Patterson, that the potential marriage would provide, quote, the only sure way of relieving herself of the expense that Beau had brought her, which she could apparently ill afford. <laughs> she may have been exaggerating a bit there, as we will later see. But for reasons that aren't entirely clear, the match between Beau and Charlotte never came to fruition. The two did meet and became close friends, but she would go on to marry a different cousin, a son of her uncle, Louis Bonaparte. Elizabeth, of course, saw this as yet another slight at the hands of the Bonaparte family, and she never forgot it. Even as she refused suitors, some of them titled for herself, 
Elizabeth's quest to obtain a, quote, imperial legacy for her son now became a relentless obsession. She would only accept a wife of, quote, great wealth for him and could only fathom a marriage of ambition and interest. Perhaps she was projecting or living vicariously through her son? I don't know. Once, she wrote to her father that she was so worked up from worrying about Beau's future prospects that she became ill with, quote, continual vomiting. Elizabeth's belief that Beau should absolutely not, above all else perhaps, select an American wife was directly contradicted by William Patterson, who irked Elizabeth by counseling his grandson to choose a wife from among his countrymen and remain in the United States. Perhaps trying to find some middle ground, Beau enrolled in Harvard instead of marrying at this juncture, which did please Elizabeth. She liked thinking that her child wasn't, quote, a fool, as she believed, apparently, two-thirds of all children to be. She saw it as better for Beau's interest that she herself continue to remain single, so that's what she did. She could play the field, as it were, and had many flirtationships with gentlemen in Europe, which helped her navigate society more freely. After the failed attempt between Pauline and Elizabeth to arrange a marriage, Elizabeth left Rome to return to Geneva. During her travels, she made a stop in Florence, where Elizabeth apparently visited the Pitti Palace, where a probably apocryphal story tells us that she encountered Jerome for what would be the last time in her life. He was there with his second wife, Katerina of Württemberg. The two apparently did not speak, although witnesses said that they saw each other and that Jerome was reported as telling Katerina that Elizabeth was his, quote, former wife or his American wife. Jerome quickly left Florence shortly after the encounter, and the two never laid eyes on each other again. In 1826, Beau sailed to Europe on purpose of meeting Jerome. Elizabeth felt that he should, even covering the expenses of his trip so that he could have the advantages of knowing his Bonaparte relatives. Around this time, he started going by his first name, Jerome, although I will still call him Beau for clarity. Beau had been born in London, as you'll remember, so he was a French citizen, and he had always felt sort of torn between his American and French relations, with everybody waiting to see where he would plant himself once he finished his education. By age 14, he had signed an oath of intention to become a U.S. citizen. By 22, he had done that and returned to Baltimore to look for an American wife. In 1829, he announced his intention to marry a Miss Susan Williams of Baltimore. Elizabeth was dismayed and disappointed, to say the least. Her grand plans for her son's future as a gentleman in Europe had come, in her mind, to nothing. This was another slight that Elizabeth placed at the feet of her father, who she accused of making the match for Beau. She saw the Williams family as, ironically, seeking to, quote, ennoble their dirty blood by marrying their daughter to a nephew of Napoleon. But I think it's absolutely fair to say that this was an act of agency for Beau. He had been able to feel out his path in life for himself, getting a taste of the continent and America, um, and finding that he preferred his life in Baltimore. Elizabeth did eventually come around to the match after learning that Miss Susan Williams did bring a fortune to the table. 
Her dowry is listed as almost $200,000. I think that is in 1829 money, which would make her worth more than $4.7 million today. And I should say the dowry stopped Elizabeth from actively opposing the match, but she never went so far as to accept it. It was never just money and security that she wanted for Beau. It was also the title and position in Europe. On the flip side, the fortune rather than love seems to have been what motivated Beau. So he did learn one thing from his mother. Love should be the last thought when making a marriage, lest you make an imprudent one. Although he had graduated early from Harvard, Beau did not seem to enjoy business as a venture for himself, so he knew that he needed to marry into money in order to maintain his independent lifestyle. I'm imagining he got that from his father. Beau and Susan were married in November 1829 by the successor to the Archbishop of Baltimore that had married Elizabeth and Jerome. Elizabeth spent the following decade traveling between Europe and America before kind of returning and settling in Baltimore. Let's talk quickly about how she solidified her personal wealth. It was through her class position, first as a child from a wealthy family, then from her marriage and her society connections that enabled Elizabeth to not only hold on to, but also accumulate her fortune. She had no husband, but she did have a child. It was quite common for quote unquote manless women of this era to end up destitute, surviving on the benevolence of friends and family alone to subsist. Though Elizabeth did have family wealth, she also actively worked towards maintaining a steady income for herself, giving her a great deal of independence. She used, quote, her class privileges to ensure her access to capital for making profitable investments. Her elite status garnered her access to the power of the state through its banks, courts, and legislature to further she and her son's economic futures. What's more, she never had to quote-unquote degrade herself to performing actual labor for her wealth. Elizabeth's income was unearned. It came from interest payments on bonds, dividends from stock, and rents from her leased properties. It was therefore seen as more genteel, even though being so single-minded about money may not have been the most ladylike attitude for the time. I'm reminded here of Scarlett O'Hara's character, if you've read Gone with the Wind, when she develops into a new woman during Reconstruction, not caring whether her fellow Atlanta residents turned up their noses at her as long as she could feed her family and keep their plantation intact. But make no mistake, Elizabeth's pursuit of wealth also required her to have a good head for business and make decisions, often on her own. In fact, her biographers point out that she was making better investments than her brothers, who had received training directly from their father. The former Secretary of the Treasury apparently remarked that he had, quote, the highest opinion of Elizabeth's intelligence, and that had she met with Napoleon and had joined forces with him, the fate of Europe might be quite different from what it is today. In 1825, Elizabeth's net worth was estimated at around $100,000, the rough equivalent of just under $3 million today. Now, I will also note that during the six-year period from 1806 to 1814, Elizabeth's records indicate that she had received almost $70,000, about $2 million today, from Napoleon and the French court supporting her. 
Her friend Martha Custis Williams remarked of her, Madame Bonaparte said she prides herself on being a self-made woman. So at this point, I think it is appropriate to ask, what do we think of that assessment of her? Is it is it like Kylie Jenner becoming the first self-made female billionaire? Because self-made and Kylie Jenner should not be in a sentence together, in my opinion. <laughs> It was certainly Elizabeth's very public and brief marriage that solidified her international fame and gave her the groundwork for what she wanted her legacy to be, this imperial aristocratic thing. But the Maryland Historical Society also argues that, quote, far more noteworthy was that as a single woman, she managed to build a fortune through astute investments and apparently holding on to it was also an accomplishment. The focus on maintaining her fortune also bled into how Elizabeth approached politics. As a small case study, let's look at her ideology during the 1830s, which was an interesting decade for the United States financially. This era saw Elizabeth turn her attention to politics once again because they now affected her. Namely, she opposed President Andrew Jackson's fiscal policies. This was due in part to the fact that his administration had eliminated government bonds as a source of her own personal income when they paid off the national debt in 1835. Elizabeth also shocked her Republican, uh, small r Republican, society contemporaries when she lent her support to South Carolina during something called the nullification crisis. If your AP US history terms are a little rusty, here's a quick refresher. After the War of 1812, the U.S. had enacted a series of tariffs, taxes on imported goods, to protect American manufacturing from lower-priced British manufactured goods. Because American manufacturing was still in its infancy, it was often cheaper to import British goods. In 1828, during the presidency of John Quincy Adams, Congress passed a particularly high tariff, which became known to its southern opponents as the Tariff of Abominations. Tariffs like this largely benefited the American manufacturing industry in the North, but were seen as bad for southerners because they, who were largely slaveholders, now had to pay higher prices for goods that they themselves, or their slaves, could not produce. Southerners also feared that foreign countries would retaliate on them by enacting tariffs of their own on raw materials produced in the South. Because the British reduced their exports to the U.S. in response to the tariff, they also had less money to pay for U.S. imports, namely cotton from the South. As a result, the British imported less and less cotton, which further depressed the Southern economy. This triggered a constitutional crisis when Andrew Jackson's VP, John C. Calhoun, put forth the theory of nullification. This was the idea that individual states could nullify any federal law, in this case one that enacted a tariff, that they considered unconstitutional, since in their minds the authority of the federal government derived from the consent of the states. Now, Elizabeth's friends could not understand why she would back the Southerners, the nullifiers in this case, since she was normally so aristocratic in her thinking, so undemocratic. The theory of nullification was more in line with the democratic ideals of the New World, not the distinguished authoritative governance of the Old. It seems, though, that for Madame Bonaparte, status and financial solvency trumped any firm political ideology. 
She continued to have an equally complicated relationship with her family at this time. These rifts were always exacerbated by her choices to pursue celebrity in both America and Europe, rather than to be an obedient daughter of the new American Republic. Elizabeth was often seen as self-centered and petty, though also, of course, witty and amusing. She, quote, reacted to forces and developments that were much larger than her personal situation. Much was still open to debate in American society, and she made her beliefs known through her words, written in hundreds of letters that were published just before her death, and in her actions as an ambitious mother and a divorcee. Elizabeth's father, William Patterson, died a millionaire in 1835 in Baltimore. In his will, he left the overwhelming majority of his estate to his sons and his grandson, and he used his will as a final way to, quote, state publicly and finally precisely what he thought about his eldest daughter. In short, he humiliated her. In his will, William wrote, quote, the conduct of my daughter Betsy has through life been so disobedient that in no instance has she ever consulted my opinions or feelings. Indeed, she has caused me more anxiety and trouble than all my other children put together. Remember, he had 13 children. <laughs> and her folly and misconduct have occasioned me a train of expense that first and last has cost me much money. He left her only quote-unquote, only, a few properties, including the house in which she had been born in Baltimore. All of these totaled approximately $10,000, a far cry from the amounts he left to his sons, but still not an inconsiderable inheritance at all. The brothers, though, received large plantations and estates, stores, warehouses, and rental properties, as well as shares in Patterson's material goods, quote, the plate, essentially the silver service, furniture, liquor, and groceries. Apparently, he had forgotten or ignored the prenuptial agreement that Elizabeth and Jerome had signed back in 1803, in which Patterson would grant Elizabeth a share of his inheritance that was equal to that of his other children. William's final rebuke of Elizabeth in his will, and the feud between her and her brothers over her father's estate, would permanently ostracize her from the Patterson family. Ironically, the case could be made that Elizabeth was more like her father than anyone else in her family. Quote, in matters of finance, Patterson guided his daughter toward sound investments and helped her dodge the new American Republic savage economic cycles. And like him, she was judgmental, shrewd, calculating, and slow to forgive. Patterson also used his will to control another woman in his life. This was his sister-in-law, Elizabeth's aunt, Nancy Spear, who I wish we had more time to go into. Nancy Spear was just as, if not more, politically minded than Elizabeth, often accompanying her to drawing rooms and debates and introducing her to friends in Washington. William granted Nancy an annuity in his will that would only be granted on the express condition that she shall, quote, never after my death attend any of the sessions of Congress at Washington or elsewhere. The will was published in the Baltimore Sun. Most likely William had arranged for this before he died. This Elizabeth saw as yet another instance of, quote, falsehood, persecution, injustice, and calumny at the hands of her father. 
Although Elizabeth initially contested the will on the basis of that prenuptial agreement, she ultimately dropped all of her legal challenges, which were against her brothers, when she learned that Nancy Spear had sold some of Elizabeth's letters to her brothers to be used against her in court and probably to be published um, to turn public opinion against her. <laughs> At this point in my notes, I just wrote, yikes. Elizabeth once called her father, quote, the plague of her life, and this seems to have stemmed primarily from the direction that he steered Beau in when it came to his marriage, as well as the efforts he made to control the living that Elizabeth made for herself. She saw all of these as personal slights and sound repudiations from her continental um, aristocratic point of view. Her anger at Beau's choice of an American for a wife became a family rift that was never truly resolved. In 1860, Jerome Bonaparte died and was buried at Les Invalides in Paris. He also completely excluded Elizabeth and Beau from his will. And you know what? I kind of respect that more than what William Patterson did using his will as a final stick to proverbially beat Elizabeth with. Jerome had actually gotten married for a third time back in 1840 to an Italian marchioness named Justina Percori Suarez. I don't know. She was a rich widow, and with Jerome in heavy, heavy debt, I think he saw Justine as a convenience, basically. He never got Justine elevated to the rank befitting the wife of a French imperial prince and a king, as he was. And he actually ended up exiling her to Florence at one point, although he did do her the courtesy of actually setting her up in a home, and she received a pension from Napoleon III when Jerome died. In 1861, Elizabeth took up a battle against the Bonapartes once again, when she filed an inheritance claim against them in the tribunal at Paris. The case became once again the subject of intense scrutiny by the transcontinental press, with public opinion, quote, supporting the woman whom Napoleon had treated so unfairly so many years ago. The tribunal ultimately ruled that, quote, the demands of Madame Patterson and her son, Jerome Bonaparte, are not admissible and must be rejected. The two were likely not actually seeking any money from this lawsuit, but rather were going after legitimacy for Beau. But with the verdict, Beau was rejected once and for all as a legal heir of his father, who, remember, had been married to his mother by the Archbishop of Baltimore, and the Pope recognized their marriage. But to add insult to injury, Elizabeth was also ordered to pay the court costs. At this point, Elizabeth was actively reflecting on her life as it had been, and in 1867 she wrote of Jerome, the sentiment of contempt to old Jerome is in my heart and circulates with every drop of blood in my body. I look upon him as belonging to the lowest type of humanity. It might have been kind of proverbial, actually, looking back on it, that she said she would rather be the wife of Jerome for an hour than married to another man for the rest of her life. Uh, as we can see, in the grand scheme of things, she pretty much was married to Jerome for an hour out of the rest of her life and was not married to anyone else. Disillusioned by being abandoned by Jerome and the Bonapartes and this final legal humiliation done to her by the French, Elizabeth now found that Paris and a cosmopolitan European life, once the objects of all of her ambition, now held little charm for her. I am too old, too ugly, and too stupid for Paris, she once wrote. 
Elizabeth would rarely grace the Washington social scene in her last years either. These were spent in what she called, quote, Baltimore obscurity, managing her estate. The value of this estate, she had increased to $1.5 million. I couldn't fully tell if this was in 1867 dollars. I believe it was. Um, if it is in 1867 currency, that would equate to about $30 million today. Elizabeth lived her last years in a Baltimore boarding house, despite having enough money to have fully purchased a house if she had wanted to, but apparently she was leasing all of her properties. At the end of her life, she commented, once I had everything but money, now I have nothing but money. She did still have her son. I'm not sure why she said that. <laughs> Elizabeth was, of course, being dramatic here again. Her celebrity status also never seems to have left the minds of Americans who no longer needed to follow her antics for a cause to wax poetic about her. Elizabeth's life had been romanticized even before she had left it. She was now mentioned in numerous memoirs and biographies, and journalists clamored to secure interviews with her. In 1873, a bundle of family letters concerning Elizabeth and Jerome's marriage was found in one of her father's old warehouses. It was published with Elizabeth, again, not giving approval per se, but expressing her indifference to the situation. This renewed interest in her story after the volume was published was the final way in which she, whether knowingly or not, cemented her place in the history books. Elizabeth died on April 4th, 1879 in Baltimore. I sort of expected her to have possibly a plan to be interred in Europe, but no, she was interred in Greenmount Cemetery, Baltimore. Her tomb bears an epitaph, after life's fitful fever, she sleeps well. The Maryland Historical Society described Elizabeth as, quote, perpetually unhappy. Throughout her long life, she set frustrating, difficult goals for herself, always reaching for places that she was told were unattainable. The past seemed to haunt Elizabeth in her last years. She has long been considered an embittered, lonely woman with dashed dreams by the end of her life. Ah, she wrote, the irrevocable past, the present stagnation, and the inexorable future. Ah, could I only shake off the curse of memory? This was written in the margins of one of her account books. <laughs> Clearly, she was indeed haunted. Charlene Lewis writes, quote, She was supposed to have lived a romantic life in Europe with her dashing husband. She should have been a queen in her own country and court. Instead, she had spent most of her life alone in her hometown of Baltimore, Maryland, deprived of the pageantry and splendor of European life. With great clarity, she blamed much of this on herself, declaring that, quote, The first false step I made in life was the absurdity, the imbecility of marrying such a husband. The consequences have hung a millstone round my neck, which I could never get rid of since. All the misery of my life I lay at the door of William P. and the old bigamist gentleman Jerome, the double-distilled traitor. She was also bitterly disappointed that she could not fulfill her dreams of nobility vicariously through her son or eventually grandsons. It is ironic that her life was so defined by her reliance on and connections to men when all she seems to have wanted was a life of independence. Though she was technically manless for most of her life, she depended on her former brother-in-law to build her fortune from the ground up, and she found her hopes repeatedly dashed by her father, brothers, and, in her opinion, her son. But let's talk legacy. 
Because of Elizabeth and Jerome's marriage, there is an American branch of the Bonaparte family, which is on its own, I think, super fascinating. Beau went on to have two sons, the eldest of whom was named Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte II. He graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point, was commissioned an officer in the United States Army, and served with the Mounted Rifles in Texas on the American Southwestern Frontier. He eventually resigned from the American forces and joined the forces of his cousin, the Emperor Napoleon III, in the Second French Empire. Following the siege of Paris during the Franco-Prussian War of the early 1870s, Charles left the French army and returned home to the United States. There he married and had two children. I imagine this disappointed Elizabeth as well, who, remember, would have still been alive at that point. But if the uh, Bonapartes had not excluded Jerome and Elizabeth's child from their succession, it was actually Beau's son, Jerome, who would have succeeded as the pretender to the French throne in 1879. I say pretender if you've never heard that term before. Um, basically, France, a republic at this point, has not had a monarch since Napoleon III was removed from power in 1870. However, under the law of succession established by Napoleon back in 1804, only legitimate male descendants through his family's male line would be eligible to assume the crown. So should the French throne ever come back into existence, male members of the Bonaparte family are still considered to have a claim to it. So if it had come back while Jerome II was still alive, it would have passed through his family, chock full of Americans. So an American king of France, or emperor, I guess. Alternate historians could have a field day with that one. I also find Beau's second son, Charles Joseph Bonaparte, to be equally fascinating. Charles served as the United States Secretary of the Navy and United States Attorney General in President Theodore Roosevelt's administration. He addressed the Supreme Court over 500 times. And in 1908, he established a Bureau of Investigation within the new, relatively new, U.S. Department of Justice. This bureau grew under the director J. Edgar Hoover and was renamed the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, in 1935. So we have the Bonapartes to thank for the FBI. I do believe that the family line continued through only the elder grandson, Jerome, the army officer. I'm pretty sure he does still have living descendants. Jerome Sr. also had some illegitimate children and children with his second wife, um, and it is a descendant of one of those branches uh, who is the current pretender to the French throne. The story of Elizabeth and Jerome's marriage and annulment, as I said, this is the basis for most narratives about Elizabeth's life. It is also the basis for a 1906 play, Glorious Betsy, by Rita Johnson Young, and there were also two film adaptations of that play, Glorious Betsy in 1928 and Hearts Divided in 1936. In the play, Elizabeth and Jerome get an upbeat and happy ending where they remain married despite Napoleon's protests. This version of the story departs from the facts, quote, in almost every aspect of the telling, <laughs> and includes a scene between Elizabeth and Napoleon in which he implores her to give up Jerome. Of course, much like that scene at the end of 2018's Mary Queen of Scots, um, between her and Elizabeth I, 
This meeting never happened, but the stage Napoleon tells Elizabeth that it is her duty as an American woman who owes a debt to France and to the memory of the Marquis de Lafayette to give up her husband. Charles Bonaparte, Elizabeth's grandson who served under Teddy Roosevelt, apparently attended a performance of this play, although no observations on the play from his part survive. I would love to know what he thought of it. The 1928 film is a silent film which features a Hollywood happy ending in which Jerome leaves his second wife and France behind just to be with Elizabeth. And the 1936 adaptation is a musical. In it, Jerome is portrayed by Dick Powell and Elizabeth by Marion Davies, with Claude Rains playing Napoleon. I think the time might be now for a more faithful adaptation of Elizabeth's story. I think that would hit really, really well in 2022. As it is, her story has been distilled down to the flashiest but most fleeting part. We talked about her, you know, marriage in the first half hour of this episode, and here we are an hour into the rest of her story. There has not been much scholarly work done on Elizabeth until very, very recently. A major source for my research for this episode was the 2016 book A Woman of Two Worlds, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, in which Alexandra Deutsch, I believe, director of collections and interpretation at the Maryland Historical Society, analyzes her personal belongings and letters to create, quote, a material culture biography of the woman whose seductive beauty and tragic marriage have long been documented. This book has lots of images of Elizabeth's clothes and her jewels and her possessions, um, as well as portraits of her and her family members. So highly recommend that if you're looking for something to kind of flip through. It's like a coffee table book. The other invaluable source for this episode was the 2012 book Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, An American Aristocrat in the Early Republic by Charlene M. Boyer Lewis. This was an a highly engaging, if not strictly chronological read. Actually, both of those works are not arranged chronologically, which I found interesting. I think that's a testament to the many different facets and spheres of Elizabeth's life. As I said, I really tried to give a well-rounded account of her life here, but it was just so long and she was active up until the very end of it. She actually died in the midst of a legal battle with the state of Maryland in the U.S. Supreme Court. This was something about whether the state could tax her um, bonds that she held out of state. Um, the court posthumously ruled in favor of the state of Maryland, um, not surprisingly. All of this to say, go please go read one of those books if you are interested in learning more of the details of Elizabeth's story. Um, the Woman of Two Worlds book, like I said, lots of pictures. That's the one I would probably recommend if you're looking for more of a casual read. Um, and then The American Aristocrat is a pretty comprehensive um, biography. There are a couple other books about her as well, but those are the two that I liked the most. And that is where I will leave this episode. Probably, I think, yeah, our longest one to date. Um, part of me... <laughs> wants to do a viewing of that Hearts Divided movie uh, now from 1936. Um, but maybe we'll do a review of that on Patreon. Let me know if that would be of interest <laughs> to any of you. As always, if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode um, or what you would like to hear next, please get in touch. You can do this um, by leaving a comment on the Instagram. You can shoot me an email um, at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Follow me on the Instagram, which is Art of History Podcast. 
on TikTok at Art of History Pod or on Twitter at Art Historic Pod. All of those channels are kind of inactive, I will admit. Um, <laughs> the thing I said at the top of the episode about not wanting to overpromise that is um, that comes from experience, but do follow them because in the event that with this new network partnership, podcasting becomes more of a full-time gig for me. I fully intend to um, have more of a little community going on those on those channels. Um, as always, I do continue to make my silly little royal history videos on TikTok at Matta of Fact. That is Matta, M-A-T-T-A, underscore of underscore fact. Um, and until next time, do not forget to check out the great podcasts that Airwave has to offer. Um, if you have exhausted my back catalog, they have got you covered on history. They also have some really cool art podcasts um, over there as well. So I'm excited to join both of those categories. But yes, until next time, I will see you then. Bye, everyone. Thank you.